for tuning in to the Believer's Church of Johnson City podcast. We are grateful you've stopped by. Regardless of where you are in your faith journey, we hope today's teaching is both challenging and also encourages you to move closer to Jesus. You can subscribe to the podcast if you want weekly messages, leave a review about your experience, and if you wish to become a giving partner, you can do so by giving online at believerschurch.tv. And of course, we want to encourage you to come see us in person. We're located at 6110 Kingsport Highway in Johnson City, Tennessee. As always, we hope you enjoy today's message. I'd like to welcome you to Believer's Church Online. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are in the fourth Sunday, the fourth week of Advent. And our candle here on this fourth week means love. As we think about this, love is kind of a funny word. It's a word that we often take for granted. But I wonder in this Advent season, if this is something that we are really practicing. If we are really practicing love for God, and the one that's a lot of times more difficult, love for neighbor. So as we know, we're, we're in the midst of a political uh, season COVID climate, everything uh, that's going on around us, are you loving the way that you should be loving? Something to think about is we're just a few days away from Christmas, and we are in the second part of a short series that we're doing on this, uh, in this Advent season in which we're talking about the arrival of Jesus and what it means. And today, as we discuss the arrival of Jesus, I want to talk about something very special, and it's that the arrival of Jesus existed, among other things, to give people like you and to give people like me a second chance. I know for a fact that there are people that are listening right now, that there are people that are going to be listening later that are in need, are in desperate need of a second chance. I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this and you know someone that is just absolutely full of guilt, that is struggling, that has convinced themselves that there is no possibility that God could love them, to definitely direct them toward this particular message, because it's going to be very special as we talk about the God of second chances. Uh, Something that will be unique about today, as I told you guys last week, is I'm going to share as, as much as I probably ever, ever will, because it's going to be a strong part of the direction of this marriage, uh, this message, my particular story, my testimony, as much as, I, as much as I ever share, because I too am a second chance story. All right, so the flow of this message might be a little bit different. It might seem a little bit less structured than it usually is, because I don't want to disrupt the narrative, and and where that goes. So my college experience, and and I have a a lot of schooling, uh, my my college experience can really be divided into two separate periods, before and after marijuana. All right, that's basically how it happened. When I I first started college out of high school, um, I found it to be very unsuccessful because of my before-class activities. I often found myself smoking pot. Ironically, 
strangely very close to where we are right now because I started out at Northeast Community College. So I would stop uh, driving literally by where this church is now, smoke pot, and then go to class. I never paid attention, knew anything that was going on, and often I would get up in the middle of the class, walk out, and what that ended up resulting in was a couple semesters full of Fs, and I got placed on academic pro uh, probation for a year, literally just a few miles down the road from where we are right now. So I took some time off from school and kind of felt that college was maybe not the path for me. All right, so I did a lot during that time. I traveled around the country quite a bit. I worked some kind of dead-end jobs. And, and after working in telemarketing, also literally down the road from here, after working a few telemarketing jobs, I decided that I wanted to go back to school. I knew that wasn't something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So whenever I did this, I made the decision that I was going to quit smoking pot. And I actually didn't quit smoking pot. I pretty much quit smoking pot but I stopped buying pot, all right? So there's a little bit of a difference. So if my friends had it every once in a while, I might smoke a little bit, but I didn't have it around all the time to be a distraction. As a result, I took every single one of those classes again and turned every single F into an A and ended up being very passionate about school to the point that I decided... I, I enjoy learning so much. I found something that I'm, that I'm good at, finally. I, I think I want to teach college. So that ended up being why I went into a career in sociology. But one thing that I recognized that was very real to me compared to my first time in school and then my second swing at college was that I was able to take advantage of a second chance. And I know some of you can relate to that as well. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. I don't use the NIV very often. I do, I do like the NIV, but I don't use it very often. But I wanted to use it today, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. We have the parable of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin. And this is going to bring us into what my favorite parable is. And this is the parable of the lost son, or the parable of the prodigal son. So starting in verse 11, this is what Jesus is telling the disciples in the crowd. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Probably not the smartest thing that early in, you know, to do, but he did it anyway. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything that there was, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, or as some translations say, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. This is walking toward the estate, toward the home. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He didn't walk to his son. This son that was disobedient, this son that had left, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Again, this is my favorite parable, and there are many others that, that make a run for this that come pretty close. But this is my favorite parable because for me, it is the most relatable. I am a comeback story. And this parable is a second chance comeback story. So when we look at the New Testament, we really see two different approaches. And I would call these approaches the Jesus approach and the Paul approach. And this is what I mean by this as far as how they are written. Jesus is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. So the way that he does ministry is through parables or through stories. And that's what we see today because he's, he's predominantly talking to an agricultural uh, agrarian society. And Paul, on the other hand, several years later, is talking to a primarily Greek Gentile audience. And the primary way that he teaches is through the development of doctrine and theology. All right, so what we see here today is Jesus and how Jesus is, is a wonderful, James, his brother that writes James, does the exact same thing, really depends a lot on stories, metaphors, analogies, you know, this particular literary, uh, these particular literary tools. So there are four realities that we see in the story of the prodigal that we need to be able to identify with. And again, the reason that I consider this to be so important is because we are in this Advent season. The arrival of Jesus is what we are celebrating uh, in this time of year. The last couple of weeks, what we've talked about is trying to remove all of these distractions that are often in our way and really focus on who Jesus is. This can be very difficult to do, though, if you're apart from God. Or if you're constantly carrying around a tremendous amount of guilt or weight because of some of the things that you've done. Or you've told yourself, there is no way that God could love me because of this. Because of that. Because of this thing that I've been a part of. Or because I've turned my back on God again and again and again over time. So four realities that we need to see in this story, and I'm going to parallel these realities with some of the things that I've been through, and no doubt as it applies to your own story, some of the things that you've been through 
or that you may be going through right now. So the first thing that I want you to recognize at the beginning of the story, the prodigal had a choice. All right, the prodigal had a choice, and he chose his own way. We were in this story out of Egypt, a 10-week series that we were in in Exodus. And if we would have continued looking at the Israelites, we would have seen on many occasions them choosing their own way. And some of you that are listening and watching right now, you're in a pattern in which you've continued to choose your own way. Now, this could be a short pattern. You're, you're kind of off of the path because of COVID. I've talked to people lately who have said that their spirituality, their life in Christ is greatly suffering right now, and it's getting worse as this virus continues. And for some of you, this could be, this could be really long-term, like amount of, a certain amount of years that you feel like you've been on a dark or a negative path. The prodigal understands this. I, as an individual, understand this. Some of the people that are at Believer's Church, they're in a very close walk with Jesus. They understand this because they've been in this position before. So the prodigal had a choice, and he chooses his own way. The passage tells us in verses 11 through 13, Jesus continued, there was a man, and this man in the story had two sons, the father. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, all right? So he wants his money and his stuff early. So the father divides the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth, everything that he had in wild living, in doing his own thing for a period of time. A little background, a little context with my story. Whenever I was 16, I grew up in church, all right, my entire life. But whenever I was 16 was when my relationship with Jesus, whenever I accepted Christ, that is when my relationship with Jesus began. It wasn't even six months after that that I went into ministry. At 16 years old, I started preaching at churches in the Tri-Cities area. And also during this time, I was a junior in high school, my schedule became pretty busy. So I was preaching Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, very regularly. I still had a somewhat normal teenage experience, but I was in ministry and I was, I was, I was preaching a lot uh, to the point that whenever I was 18 years old, I was actually asked to be the interim pastor. I, I preached at a church, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Elizabethan. I preached there a few Sundays in a row because they were without a pastor. And then they asked me to be their interim pastor for a period of time. I ended up being there for six months. In that period of six months, we saw the church grow a lot. And, and here I am, this kid that, that, just to be completely honest with you, has no, no life experience no real understanding of, of what I was doing. I was just learning on the go and getting the experience as I, as I had it. But one thing that the majority of the people around me did not know is that I was struggling. It started whenever I was 17 years old in, in, in February of 1999, not long before I graduated high school. I really started struggling with doubt and a lot of anxiety, and a lot of, a lot of depression, mental illness. And, and at that time, in the, in the late 90s, there was an even stronger 
a stigma, you know, with, with depression and anxiety and some of the things that I was going through, but also just horrible spiritual doubt. It started out with me doubting my salvation. Do I really know Jesus? Just kind of an emotional train wreck experience, eventually to the point where I'm questioning, does God exist? If God does exist, could God really love me? It is, you know, it's kind of like the framework, and this is kind of a normal thing, this existential crisis that happens to a lot of young people, but it's like the safety net that was around me in my good Christian home, it's like it completely, the shelter was completely removed. And I didn't know exactly what to do with that. And I think one of the differences for me and your typical teenager that goes through that, which is actually pretty normal, is that I was in ministry. And I had this, this perception of what I was supposed to be like and felt that people had this perception of how I was supposed to be. So I'm talking to my dad and a few other people that I trust that are also in ministry at this time. And they tell me, you know, people go through this kind of thing. It's a difficult thing whenever you have doubt. It's, it's a trial. It's going to increase your faith and all this kind of stuff. And of course, that's what I believe. That's what I felt like I was supposed to do. So I continued to preach. I then had the opportunity to go to Fruitland uh, Bible Baptist College, uh, which is in Hendersonville, North Carolina. I was very apprehensive. I, I was, it, it was a, a reluctant decision that I made. But I felt like if I went there, I would be around enough people that had been through some of the same experiences that I had been through because it just continued. It felt like it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And a lot of Sundays I was, I was preaching when I was really questioning, do I still believe this stuff? Is this really something I can do for the rest of my life? And, and I even started to fall into the category of, well, well Christians seem this way, but Jesus seemed this way. And a lot, of, a lot of the questions, doubt, skepticism that people naturally have, especially as you're, you're younger and you're kind of cutting your teeth on, on adulthood. All right, so, so this is where I was at this time. So I left and I moved to North Carolina, and it was an absolutely horrible experience. My, my mental health greatly declined. And this wasn't because of loneliness or being away from home. In fact, I wasn't even that far from East Tennessee. It's just that the, I, I couldn't relate to people around me that were celebrating and praising Jesus and talking about how wonderful their calling was and things like that because I just didn't feel that. And I remember being someone that suffered from, from childhood leukemia. I remember one night laying in the, in the floor in my dorm and saying, God, why didn't you just kill me? when you had the chance. This was, this was definitely, with, with mental health issues, the most suicidal period of time that I ever went through. And to the disappointment of my family and to the disappointment of people that had attended church with me or, or grew up around me that were still in the faith, whenever I left Fruitland, whenever I left North Carolina after a semester, I also at that point left Christianity behind. All right, it just it, it didn't make sense. All right, I was I, I was reading other things. I've always been curious uh, from an intellectual perspective. I've always wondered, you know, what else was out there. What, it, what you know, ethically, you know, it seemed like there were some problems with Christianity. And these are these are the things that a lot of people deal with and struggle with. It didn't help that I started drinking whenever I got back. I I never really partied much in high school. I started drinking uh, whenever I was 19, and it was a recreational thing, and, and, and drugs were always, for me, 
pretty recreational. I, I never got, got hooked on anything. But at about 23, 24 years old, I started to recognize uh, that alcohol was becoming a, a, a problem for me. All right, so the prodigal had a choice, and the prodigal chose his own way. And this was something that, that I experienced as well. The second thing that I want you to recognize today is that the prodigal discovered his own rock bottom. All right, and this, it doesn't matter if it's alcohol, if it's going through a horrible divorce, if it's just recognizing that ethically as a person you'll never measure up. Whatever you may go through, every person that makes the decision to follow Jesus has to have some kind of rock bottom moment. All right, I think it looks a little bit different for all of us. For example, what I went through doesn't look like what the prodigal son went through. What you went through is not necessarily what someone else that, that's watching right now went through. But we have these moments where we recognize these, these moments where, that, that we simply can't do it. The passage, if we go on further, says this. Not long after this, so he's, he squandered his wealth in, in what the text called wild living. All right? So he has nothing else. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. All right, this is really important because we need that moment of need. All right, shortly before we started, started uh, filming this, uh, Ryan and I were talking about individuals that we know that we'd like to see come to know Jesus but we can't make these individuals make these decisions. And some of you are frustrated family members because you keep trying to invite so-and-so to church or you keep trying to talk to so-and-so about Jesus and there's very little, if any, response whatsoever. And that is because they have to know for themselves what it feels like to eat with the pigs. They have to understand to some degree that they can't do it on their own. They have to have their own rock bottom moment. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with their pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. There were moments over the years that I can remember, and a lot of this memory is, is spotty. We're talking about a 12, 13-year period that I don't discuss with anyone in detail. There are things that my wife doesn't know simply because I feel the need to protect her from these things, and I know that she wouldn't want to know these things that I've done and that I've been a part of that still to some degree, even though I'm free in Christ, can sometimes when the enemy is at work haunt me to this very day. One thing that I can tell you is that 
the worst thing for me as an individual out of, out of years of, of drug use, alcoholism, and a lot of other things, the worst possible thing that I ever went through and went through pretty regularly was coming down off of any form of speed, in particular coke, but other drugs as well, because it did something to trigger the depression in my brain that made me feel like I was going to die. And for years, for, for years, the only time that I can ever remember praying were those desperation prayers that I would pray after, after doing a lot of speed and all the friends have left or other people have went to sleep and just praying, God, please help me fall asleep. Please help this feeling go away. Only the next day to do the same thing over again. It was desperation. It was, it was barely hanging on for many years, for many years. Now, I would eventually, down the road, I did finish college. That was the thing, college and, and eventually working on my master's. For, for whatever reason, there's a lot of things that I'm not very good at, but for some reason, school became just second nature and something that I was able to get through relatively uh, with ease. It was also something that I enjoyed, so I didn't mind to put the time in to doing that. I got a job teaching in Kentucky, and it wasn't long after that that Beth and I started dating. I, I married a, a woman that was very far out of my league, that was a very good person. And at this stage of my life, I was, I was no longer using drugs at all, but I was doing a relatively good job masking the alcoholism. And, and the thing about Beth and I, whenever we dated... We lived in separate states. Beth lived in Tennessee. I lived in Kentucky. So even though Beth saw some of the bad, she wasn't necessarily exposed during our dating relationship and even whenever we got engaged to, to everything. You know, it, it would be in our marriage whenever, whenever she would see that. And throughout this process, in my life, even after Beth and I started dating, as, as, as happy as she made me and as happy as this stepdaughter, Callie, made me, I was still very, very unhappy. I had a great career. At this, at this point, I was getting to travel all over the world, uh, taking students usually on trips, but, but I was miserable inside. And this just goes to what you hear all the time, that there is nothing that can fill that void within except for the father. And this is exactly where the prodigal son is in this particular story. And it wasn't until one really bad night, and I mean epically horrible night, that everything in my life turned around. So the third thing that I want you to recognize is that the prodigal came to himself, all right? The prodigal comes to himself, or as our text says, comes to his senses. Verses 17 through 20 say this. When he came to his senses, my grandfather used to always talk about that moment when the prodigal came to himself. That's that aha moment. That's when the light bulb comes on. That's when the addict tells himself as a person that's been through recovery, 
I am weak to my character defects. I cannot do this on my own. I'm in complete denial. I need something greater than myself. When he came to his senses, he said, and his, his brain is really working here. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? You see, he's not even talking or thinking about going back into sonship. Like, there's no way dad's going to take me back in as a son. But at the least, maybe, just maybe I can be a servant. Because if I'm a servant of the household, I'm at least not starving to death in desperation far away from home. And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, and this is where every sinner has to be, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This is the moment of repentance. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up with this thought, and he went to the Father. After a, a really bad argument, about 18 months into marriage, I made the decision the next night that I was going to go out for a few drinks, which is something that I often did whenever Beth and I would have an argument. And on this particular night, I stayed out a lot later. And I left early in the evening, 6, 7 o'clock. And it was 1 or 2 o'clock whenever I came home that night. We had a really bad altercation, a really bad argument. I went and slept it off in another room, and the next day she asked me to leave. I was ashamed. I felt horrible about the way I'd handled myself. I felt bad about the things that I had said the night before. So I left, and I didn't know exactly where I was going to go because I was also too ashamed to contact anybody that I knew, any friends that I had in Kentucky. So I went to a hotel. I went to a, a, the, the Days Inn in, in Paintsville, Kentucky. I went there, and I didn't know how long I was going to stay, but I was going to be there at least a night to try to figure things out. And whenever I went to that hotel, very hungover, unbelievably depressed, uh, could not lay down, could not sleep, could not eat, could not think straight. It was in that hotel that I knelt down and gave everything to God. At that stage, because of some of the things that had been said and where we already were in our marriage at that time, I thought there was a very good possibility that we were going to get a divorce. So whenever I quit drinking and I made that decision that day, I made it for me, and I surrendered myself. I often refer to it as a second conversion in my life. And I told myself, you, you know, you, you, you might die of a heart attack. You could die in a car accident. You could die of cancer. You could die of a lot of things. But this is not going to be what gets you. And I also knew in that moment, because I tried to quit drinking before, that I was going to have to have help. Fortunately, I didn't need inpatient but I knew that I was going to have to have meetings of some kind. I was going to have to have sponsorship. I was going to have to have someone keep me accountable. Spent the night in the hotel. 
I had called my dad that evening, told him everything, everything, which I'm sure was very hard to to hear. You have to keep in mind, I'd also lived in another state away from family for a few years at this point. So the next morning, dad drives up and dad says, what do you want to do? This is a Sunday morning. And I said, I'd like to go to church. And I wanted to go to my home church where, where Beth and I were attending, which is Destination Community Church. So dad is driving me, and we pull up to the church, and I still felt so much shame and so much guilt over over what I had done and the problems that I had caused. I told him in the parking lot, I said, I I can't even go in. I I can't go to church. I can't even go in. And he says, trying to be very supportive, he says, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, let's just, let's just go have breakfast. I had hardly eaten anything. So let's go have breakfast. So we skip church and we go to a Bob Evans and we're sitting there talking and he tells me about a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And some of you are familiar with Celebrate Recovery. It's a, it's a faith-based 12-step recovery program. And I decided uh, to, to reach out to someone. At that time, the closest one that I could find was about an hour away. It was at a church in in Ashland, Kentucky. I reached out, found a phone number online, reached out to the guy that was over it, told him the situation that I was in. I was actually I hadn't went home. I was staying with a friend, also a friend that was going through a divorce. I was sleeping on his floor because his ex-wife had taken most of his furniture. How depressing is that? All right, so I'm sleeping on the floor and I know that I'm going to go to this recovery meeting and and Beth knew Beth knew that I was serious because I'd never talked about recovery meetings before. So she tells me, you know, I'm going to, I'll take you, I'll drive you, you know, this hour so you don't have to go by yourself. All right, so so she drives me to Ashland, uh, um, Kentucky, and it's pouring the rain. It's a Monday evening, and I'm a nervous wreck. I get out of the car. She drops me off. She co- she's going to come back and pick me up in like an hour and a half. And I walk in, and I'm wearing a tie. I'd been at the college that day. And the the first thing that I thought with like this self-righteous, judgmental attitude was, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I've made a mistake. And I sit down in this church, and people start sharing, and they start talking. And I realize these people from all these different walks of life with different stories are exactly like me. And if there has ever been a place that I've belonged, it was in that place. And I made a commitment that I was going to start going. And this began my my descent out of hell. Every single Monday, whenever I got off at the college, before I went and saw my family, I drove to Ashland, Kentucky. And I didn't get home until late that night. I worked every single step. And I would love to tell you that this was a, a, a wonderful thing. And I just all of a sudden felt better and it was great. But the truth is, psychologically, I was in hell for, for three months. It was horrible. And then it started to get a little bit easier. But I resented Beth for wanting me to go. I resented people around me that were still drinking I couldn't go to restaurants and bars or to see live music like I love to do, that we love to do for a pretty good period of time. 
I had all these raw emotions that I just pretty much buried the last 12 years of my life that I didn't know, know how to deal with. And it's like all of a sudden I'm, this, I'm trying to figure out all of these new things. I, I speak to my, my men's group that I'm in at Destination Community Church, our small group, and I confess to them. I tell them I have an alcohol problem. When I start drinking, I can't quit drinking. I didn't know really what to expect, but they just they just wrapped their arms around me and loved me, and that was exactly what I needed. Uh, Beth and I started hosting a, a student small group, a college small group at the house, and this was just an absolutely wonderful time for our marriage, and it was a wonderful, wonderful way to figure out what God was doing. He was putting everything together. And this point, this last point, really ties everything together for, for the prodigal son and for us with second chances. The prodigal was given a second chance. So whenever he sees his father, he is given a second chance. The passage tells us in verses 20 through 24, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. No Resentment? No, I told you so. No, you spent all the money, go back to where you came from. His father was full of compassion. And that is the goodness of the gospel. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, and this part is so important, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, keep in mind that the son was hoping to come home as a servant. He said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger Put sandals on his feet. And this is, this is hugely symbolic in the Jewish world at this time. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. You see, he was lost. And now he's found. So they began to celebrate. I did want to make up for lost time. So I had this moment of confession with my small group. Shortly after that, Beth and I started having college kids over to our house for a small group. And one of these students, who's a good friend of mine uh, today, Toy Adams, one of these students who was, was pastoring at a small Methodist church in Kentucky said, would you be interested in sharing at our church one Sunday? And I thought, I've not been in front of a church in a really, really long time. And he's asking me to speak like he's asking me to, to preach. So I was very reluctant to do this. And, but I, I told Beth, I said, I feel like this is something I should do. This is several months after I'd been sober. And when we drove to the church that morning, there was probably about 20 people there. 
but you would think there was 20,000 people there. I was so nervous and uncomfortable. But whenever I stood up in front of that group of people, in front of that congregation, to declare the Word of God, it was as if the Spirit entered my bones and I hadn't lost a beat since I was 19 years old. The sun was lost, but now he's found. And the rest is history. It wasn't long after that that I was speaking at Destination Community Church, that I registered for seminary because I knew at that point I was going into full-time ministry. Ended up then becoming the pastor of Destination Community Church for three and a half years. One of the greatest experiences of my life. And now following the call of God back literally home to East Tennessee. So please understand this. As we enter this exciting Christmas season, especially if you're in a situation in which that desperation the disappointment, the way your self-esteem has been beat down over time because you watch yourself make the same mistakes again and again and again. Just three things that I want us to understand about second chances. And the first is this. Second chances are moments of great gratitude and should not be abused. So this message that we're talking about today and the story of the prodigal son is not about, you know, I really got myself in trouble and I need a bailout. I feel really guilty and bad about some of the things that I've done. So I need to kind of not feel bad for a little while. No, the prodigal was done. And you know, something that I often think about that's not in the story was the walk back home to his home country, the walk back to the father's house, and the anticipation of getting there, but also the anxiety of, is he going to accept me as a servant? But you see, the prodigal had made up his mind that he was turning his life over. The second thing to notice is this. Second chances are offered despite your screw-ups. Grace is a beautiful thing. Forgiveness, reconciliation with God, these are beautiful things. This is very, very special. So it doesn't matter how dark your moment is or how deep in the hole you are. If your need is desperate and you recognize and know that you are finished with your way and that you cannot do it on your own, the Father is in your midst and forgiveness comes through the Son. And then lastly, second chances are only possible because Jesus arrived. So I am not talking about, with all due respect, 
for, for NA and AA, which I think really, really get people on the right track and help people. I, I'm not talking about a general higher power. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm talking about the arrival that we celebrate, as we said last week, is much bigger than a baby in a manger and is, is about a man at 33 who died on the cross for your sins and for my sins so that we could have life and that we could have an opportunity for second chances. Maybe today, if the heart is beating fast, if you're full of emotion because of what you're going through right now, if you see that just the mess is too heavy and you recognize right now that Jesus will make those burdens light, you can be changed today. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning thanking you again for your goodness and thanking you for second chances. How many of us get lost this time of year in the things that we're buying and all the activities and we're so upset because this virus has ruined some of our plans and we've completely lost focus on who you are and what your message is and the fact that you have saved us and changed us Father and there are people that are listening right now that are watching right now that can easily send a message Father, to this church on Facebook or can easily reach out to the email uh, from our website that need a second chance, that need an opportunity to know you for the first time or an opportunity, Father, to make things right and make things new. We lift you up and we praise you in this Christmas season in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.